The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he plants one. Way back! It's one out. He's He's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. I got to be honest with you. It's a really weird day in the town. In my hand. I have a box score from May 19th, the last time this game was played. We are going to have a game coming up here at 5 o'clock that's in progress. Mike Fires has already gone six innings, giving up three runs. Liam Hendricks is in the ballgame. Detroit is on their one, two, three, four, five. They're on their sixth pitcher already. And this game's got some crazy, and I mean some crazy things about it. Did you know that if the Athletics win this game, it'll take their winning streak from seven games to 11 games? Remember that time where they could lose on this road trip and they swept the Cleveland Indians? So their winning streak goes from seven to 11. How about this? If the A's hold on to this 5-3 to three victory, the A's will have beaten the Tigers 16 straight times. Put Commander Cody up. I want him to understand this. Uh, also, I was looking at this too. If they, uh, at tomorrow night, they could have 100 losses, by the way. If they lose all three, they could have 100 losses by tomorrow night. Who? The Tigers could have 100 losses on the year if they lose all three games. Are you serious? Yes. They're 41-97. to 97. So what do we got going here? Seth Brown stepping up to the – Seth, how you doing? Chris Townsend, nice to meet you. Our first uh, talk with the outfielder. Welcome to A's Cast Live. This is the live talk show that we do from the field. We're the only team in baseball that does it. I know you probably didn't see this in uh, Las Vegas, but uh, welcome to the ball club and congratulations on the unbelievable start. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Now, this game right here. Mm-hmm. It's actually pretty crazy. If the A's hold on to this 5-3, to three, we're just talking about it, this is going to take their longest winning streak from seven games to 11 games. And if they win this game, that'll be 16 consecutive wins against the Detroit Tigers. I love that. This is this game's supposed to be in Detroit, yeah. but it's here. How wild is that? Oh, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's it's the perfect storm. So you're you're not going to be in the lineup for this game, correct? No, I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Uh, What's this ride been like for you? Because your start has just been unbelievable. I mean, it's something that's just been so hard to describe, and um, I've been trying to soak it in every day. And uh, just being here, um, especially at this time of the year, um, it's just so awesome. Um, it's so I feel so blessed to be out here every day, and um, I just it's hard to put into words what I mean. My whole road to get here has been like, and um, it's just awesome. And you get it going right out of the gate, which is so nice because it takes – how much of the pressure does that just take off of you? I mean, you know, it's it was so cool to, you know, to get the call, number one, um, you know, was just something that I've been dreaming about since I was a kid. And then to, to show up and, and be able to just jump in the lineup, uh, you know, my first day up was was so awesome, um, you know, just to get out there and get, get that first game under the belt. But being able to come out here and just contribute to the team um, has been – just so incredible for me um you know and it allowed me to take you know the pressure off my shoulders uh just to get going and uh get going early was was huge um you know and it helped uh helped me definitely just kind of jump in and uh you know be comfortable yeah not only do you get your first hit in your first game you get your first rbi yeah so you know for a lot of guys because we thought we talked to shell noisy about, you know, you start out, you don't get a hit, and you start thinking about it. Luckily for you, we haven't had to do that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think about 
what we've really experienced here this season, not only a good year, but there's something romantic about baseball and the debut. Absolutely. And we've, we've, had, we've had quite a few of those. Mm-hmm. And take me through that experience with your family. And, you know, because immediately once you get a hit, the camera pants to your family. Yeah. They're going nuts. I mean, it's awesome. Well, it was actually interesting. Uh, you know, so obviously I'm in Tacoma. Um, and uh, when I got the call, you know, first call I made was, you know, to my dad. And, um, you know, so obviously they're going to get a flight out, you know. And my little brother was able to be there. And he's in the Marlins organization. Yeah. So that was just incredible to have him there because, I mean, he, he's been there with me, you know, all growing up, obviously. But um, we actually got the same flight. I came from Tacoma. They came from Medford, Oregon. So we all – we both – went to uh, Salt Lake City and got on the same flight oh, wow. to go to Kansas City. So it was a really cool, really awesome experience. Um, you know, and so having them there and uh, for the first game, first hit was just something that was just meant to be, um, you know, and it just meant the world that, you know, they were able to be there. And, you know, my wife, she's been so, I mean, for her, she's been working so hard the last few years, you know, and we, I just got recently married, um, you know, last December. So her support has been absolutely off the charts you know and she's one of the hardest workers i know and uh, so then she got to come to new york um you know because she had started teaching you know she's a coach um so she's so busy so having her be able to come to new york was uh, you know um an unbelievable experience and having her there just you know really completed it for me um you know first the family coming to see the the first series i play in and um, and then having her be able to come to New York uh, was just an incredible, incredible experience. What does she coach? Oh, she's a basketball player. You know, we met in college, and yeah. uh, she was an incredible basketball player. Um, so uh, she wanted to be a teacher, and um, so she started teaching, and we live in Bend, Oregon now, and um, she's coaching the Varsity High School out in Sisters, Oregon. And so, uh, you know, it's like when, when my season's going, is her down, and yeah. you know, her or summer, and you know, then when I get back, it's, you know, I'm in full support mode of what she's doing. And, uh, you know, so I'm there on the sidelines as she coaches. So it's it's a pretty cool, pretty cool little thing we got going. Yeah, it's very similar to Stephen Vogt. Stephen yeah. Vogt's wife was a coach. It still is a coach. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So right now you're mm-hmm. in a situation to where not only do you get the call up. Well, first of all, how was it with Fran? We've had Fran on the program a yeah. few times, and we've laughed with him. He's the manager of the greatest offense of all time yeah, absolutely. In, the, in the Aviators. Yes. Fran's a good man. What was that conversation like? Um, you know, Fran, um, he's been a huge, huge help for me and, you know, an, an amazing, you know, motivator and a, an amazing guy to look up to. And, you know, that whole coaching staff, you know, they really pulled for me. And um, so when we were hit, we were hitting in the cages in Tacoma and, um, you know, it was it was his birthday, and, you know, he's always he's, he's told me, you know, I hate my birthday. You know, it's not something I like to celebrate. And he goes, the only thing that makes me feel good on my birthday is when my kids call me. And, you know, and uh, but he goes, today I get to do, you know, one of the what, one of the best birthday presents I've gotten was to tell Seth Brown he's going to be a big leaguer. And it was just a, in a very emotional moment for me, um, you know, because uh, just him, you know, I, I was working with him like, I mean, we did early work every single day, you know, and so all the work I put in and have him tell me that was just uh, was one of the, the most special moments. And, you know, I'll always remember it was him telling me that, you know, and me just being in shock and obviously, you know, not, <laughs> not really grasping what he just told me, you know. And so, uh, yeah, it was unbelievable. But why were you shocked? You're having you were having a monster year. Well, you know, I've, I've just been working so hard uh, for so long and. You know, it started at the beginning of the season where, you know, coming in, I, I had my focus set on just making a team, um, you know. So that was my whole focus this off season was I need to bust it, you know, and I need to make a team. And uh, so getting – originally I was going to go to double A at the beginning, and, you know, and uh, Pennington took his option. So that gave that opened up a spot for me in Vegas. So uh, coming in, my whole goal was to just earn a spot on the field to where I could, I could have a starting spot, you know. And so graduating from going – coming in every day going okay I got to earn a spot today got to earn a spot today to that whole point of getting the call was just a whirlwind um and it was just so special to me and so I mean and you know getting the call is just something that you to me I I didn't want to think about I didn't want to think about okay you know am I ever going to make it that that type of thought process to me it was okay today's today I'm going to get the most I can out of today work as hard as I can today and whatever happens happens so having that moment happen for me um was something that I just I hadn't put any thought into and um, you know so I it was a shocking shocking experience well some people will talk about hard work ethic but Mm -hmm. then there's an obsession 
Yes. And the stories I'm hearing about you, like you got a seven o'clock game, you want to start hitting at nine a.m. Yeah. No. And, I, and people are like, you need to slow down a yeah. little bit. Well, no, I, I definitely classify myself as obsessed uh, with working, and um, it's just something that I've I carry with me, um, you know. And it's it's more of a, a pride thing for me, and it's kind of gives me that that edge, I think, and um, which is I want to work as hard as I possibly can every single day and you know um physically it's i want to push my body every single day um and so that mindset has really contributed to me the most um and helped me along the way is even even when you wake up every one morning you're sore you're tired that's the day where you know you got to go in and bust it even harder because you can i mean to me i put my mind and i have this mindset of i can push through it and so when i wake up in that soreness or i wake up and i'm not feeling good i know i can press it even harder that day and, uh, yeah, so I definitely classify myself as obsessed with working. Okay, so you just turned 27 years old. Yes, sir. And I start thinking about, and I ask guys who are a little bit older, and you've been mm-hmm. in the minor leagues. Yeah. Have you, now that you're in the big leagues, you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but before, do you start thinking about, okay, I'm 27, I haven't made the big leagues yet, you know, I'm married, mm-hmm. you don't want to have a family. Yeah. Was there any doubt before the call-up? I mean, there, you always have those thoughts of, okay, you know, what's, what's a backup plan, you know? And that's why my wife has been so unbelievable for me because, you know, I got my degree in criminal justice, um, you know, and having her there, I mean, that was one of our big things is, you know, when we got engaged was, okay, now it's time for you to, I mean, I know you love baseball and you want to play and I'm here to support you as for as long as you want to play, but you're going to get your degree and you're going to finish school. And then that way you can play for as long as you want to and always have that backup plan. So, I mean, when you have that set in place, it really, because for the first couple seasons, you know, that those thoughts always kind of sink in and always are hitting you like, man, you know, like what if what if this doesn't work out, you know? And um, But once I had that degree, um, it kind of took all that away, and it was like, okay, now I can focus, now I can play for as long as I can. And when I know it's, I mean, if whether I make it or not, you know, I'll have that good backup plan. So that was huge huge yeah that's the thing about you know when, when guys don't have the degree you know congratulations for you because you it, it is a unbelievable plan but the, you know I want to see you on the A's for a long time <laughs> Me but, too. but this is something that I talk about because I also work in football I work for the Raiders yeah and we just went through preseason and one of the things we always talk about is whether you make the Raiders or not you're auditioning for 31 of the teams absolutely and that's the thing I think about you we'd love to have you here for a long time for God's sakes you're hitting 448 <laughs> But that also is something that you, you're putting yourself on tape for 29 other teams. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, opportunities are, are you, you never know when they're going to come, and you got to be able to seize them when they do. Um, you know, and who knows what the future holds. Um, you know, I, uh, I, lo- I love what, what I've done the past few years, and, you know, I love the Oakland A's. And, um, you know, but for me, it's it, I'm here, and I need to focus on being here and, um, you know, doing what I can to help the, help the team. And, um so being a part of this whole organization, the history of it is just a huge honor for me, um, you know. And so it's it's like I said, it's been a whirlwind to go from putting in all the hours, all the time to to being here, um, you know, and embracing it. And um, but it's it goes it all goes back to, you know, I'm here and I want to work hard every day and, you know, and kind of carry my weight. Yeah, well, you know, when you're hitting like you are, you're going to get your opportunities. And I think that's one of the things that's great about the athletics. And I talked to David Fortz. We do the general manager Mm -hmm. show right here on A's Cast Live is that if you're in Oakland A and you and and no matter where you're drafted or if you're not even drafted, they bring you in as a free agent. Mm -hmm. If you if you play well, you're going to get your opportunity. And we're seeing that with you and a couple other guys. Mm-hmm. Did you know that, that, you know, if I really do well, I have a shot to get to the big leagues? I mean, yeah, they, uh, the Oakland A's are incredible, you know, and uh, Jim Kaufman was my scout. And, you know, it, I'm just so thankful that I, you know, my, one of my first things when I was talking to him when I got drafted in 2015 was I just want an opportunity, um, you know. And that's it, it's the beauty of the Oakland A's is that if you do perform, you're going to get a chance to keep moving and keep going. Um, and that's all I've, I've all, always been about was I just I need to play hard. I need to do well, um, you know, and opportunities are going to come, and i got to be ready for them when they do. What was the first, oh, my God, I'm in the big leagues? What was that first moment? First moment for me, you know, and like I said, it's the whole series against Kansas City is a little bit of a blur, but I, the biggest moment that I think I've had is, um, you know, I'm playing, I'm playing left field uh, in New York, and all of a sudden, you know, we're getting late in the game, 
and I see Chapman warming up in the bullpen. And it's like, man. (laughs) I mean, and, you know, I'm coming up in the lineup. I think I was up second or third that inning. And all of a sudden I'm in left field and I look over in the bullpen, you know, and I'm seeing movement and all of a sudden I see it's Chapman. And so that moment for me was just like, holy cow, you know, this is a guy I've watched on TV for years and, you know, a guy that I've always really wanted to face. And so at that moment it was like, man, you know, like I'm here, you know, and uh, it, it was just it that kind of all the the emotion that I felt, you know, in KC and then going to New York and being in that park for the first time um, just kind of came to a head. And it was, you know, you get the goosebumps, you know, and you're like, man, you know, look where I'm at. You know, this is this is amazing. And so that I think that's been that biggest moment for me. I know for noisy, it's like imagine making your. You mean you made it in Kansas City, which is a good spot, obviously. Absolutely, great yeah. barbecue. Uh-huh. But you mean you're you're making your debut, and it's Yankee Stadium. I remember the first time I went to old Yankee Stadium. Yeah. And as a fan, and yeah. you walk out there and you see the pinstripes, and you're like, oh my god, Babe Ruth played here, Lou Gehrig yeah. played here. I mean, that's you know your second series being at Yan- brand new Yankee oh, Stadium, man. pretty incredible. You know, it's funny. I told Sheldon that day uh, when he was starting. I said, hey man, not a not a bad place to make your debut and get your first hit out of the way, you know, and. Uh, because it's amazing. I mean, this baseball is it, like you said. There's so much, you know, romance in it with with all the the emotion and all the history of it. And when you become a part of it, it's it's truly um, like a you know amazing moment to to grasp when it hits you that man, I'm a part of it now. And uh, it was it, I was really really happy for Sheldon, um, you know. And like I said, especially facing I, I think you know facing CC Sabathia, you know it's like yeah. that, it's it's amazing, you know you're up there and you're like wow, you know these are my first at bats and so it was a really amazing moment for him. Do you look over at the monuments? No, not yet, not yet. No, no, the mon- oh, at Yankee oh, Stadium. Oh, Yankee, oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, like I said, there's so much stuff to do around there. It's uh, it's amazing to to see it all. Yeah, well, hey, let me tell you something. When you're a good interview, you're going to get a lot of opportunities. You're a good interview. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Congratulations, and uh, keep it up and hitting over 400. Mm-hmm. And you got a chance to you got a chance to go to the postseason. Oh, man, I'm telling you, it's uh, like I said, the, the, the goosebumps and the excitement grows every day. Hey, thank you so much for stopping by and continued success. Hey, thank you so much for having me. How cool is that? Talking about another, you know, an opportunity – and getting an opportunity in the big leagues and, and making the debut. And after that, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. I can tell you, I saw this man pitch in the World Series in 1984. As a 12-year-old in San Diego, California, I was there when he pitched in the World Series. He's one of the greatest big game pitchers of all time. He's a Hall of Famer. And the great Jack Morris is with us here on A's Cast Live. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm enjoying this wonderful weather that you guys uh, take for granted every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the problem is we got to pay a lot of money for it. That's the only <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> that's the only problem. How are you? Well, I'm doing great, you know, watching a lot of baseball games and uh, get paid to do it. So you can't uh, really complain about something like that. Uh, it's been challenging with a team that's struggled the way the Tigers have, but uh, glad to be out here in Oakland, watch a team that is trying to push for a postseason berth. Yeah, how odd is it? We had, you know, they, they passed it out to us earlier today. It's yeah. the, the box score of, of the game that was suspended. Right. Uh, this is supposed to be a Tiger Stadium, but yet we're here in Oakland. <laughs> Welcome to Comerica. <laughs> <laughs> Which I really like. Beautiful ballpark, by the way. I love Comerica. Yeah, it's uh this is definitely an, a unique uh, situation today, uh, picking up a game. I, I think the most unique part about it is it's the first game I can ever remember that there won't be a national anthem played before it starts. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah we're just going to go right it's already out and get been it going. Played. It's already been played. So when, when you think about your time in the big leagues and the kind of player that you were, you were such a big game pitcher. And what did the big moment always mean to you? Because you seem to always rise to the top. You know, I didn't always. I mean, I made mistakes in 93. I, I didn't uh, necessarily, 92, I shouldn't say, against uh, back-to-back years against uh, uh, Atlanta. I, I gave up a home run that I don't want to think about too much. But I always loved the idea of playing in postseason because you work so hard all year long and then – all your colleagues go home and we all get to watch one team and i i really liked the fact that they were watching me and said i was watching them that was you know baseball players are pretty much into what they do and uh to know that 
the rest of the baseball world was home and you got the chance to shine and and do your thing that was always fun for me yeah like i said i i was there in the 1984 world series when you guys took on the padres and that 84 team that you guys had you got out to that set what was it 35 and 5 something like that yep. that great start and it, and you just blew everybody away you're truly one of the best baseball teams of all time talk what it was like playing on that team you know we were all relatively young we hadn't had any guys become famous baseball players yet uh you know several of us got a lot of recognition after that and because of that year but 84 was a culmination of a bunch of guys who had taken our whooping for a few years at the major league level and finally looked across the diamond and said that's enough we can play with anybody and we're gonna have to prove it and it started really at the second half of 83 uh baltimore ended up winning they went on to win the world series and we knew we could beat baltimore so we came to the spring training facility in 84 with a chip on our shoulders we never let it go and i don't think we all really were too enthralled with our record we really quite honestly i don't think any of us really were aware of how historic it was was happening you know 17 in a row on the road i don't know if that'll ever happen again 35 and 5 i don't know if that'll ever happen again but we weren't really into that we were just trying to play every game meaningful and and show the other team that when when the game was over we're going to win and i think recently you going into the baseball hall of fame with alan trammell and and behind you you had one of the great shortstop second base combinations of all time with with lou whitaker but talk about what it was like and what it meant to you to go into the hall of fame with a guy you played so many games with yeah it's like your little brother right i mean alan and i started our careers together we were drafted the same year um and uh 13 years together in detroit um you know i feel the same way about lou lou was drafted a year before us and he played at a ball before you know we kind of leapfrogged him uh but tram and lou came up together a couple weeks after i had already gotten to the big league so it was a a timing thing where we all were our young kids got our chance had to learn had to had to grow and uh finally we kind of started putting it together and and when I look back at those two guys, they're everything that my career became is partly due to what they were able to do. Uh, you know, they're great, the great people. I love them to death. And uh, now it's up to baseball to recognize Lou for what he's accomplished because I think he's a Hall of Famer too. I, I, I definitely agree. One of the great second basemen of all time. And then after Detroit, you go back home. And you win a World Series in your hometown. And John Smoltz was just on the program. You two guys linked up in truly one of the greatest games that has ever played. Talk about winning the World Series and that Game 7, you against John, the Braves, the, the Twins. You had the, you had the walk-off with Kirby, Puckett in, the, in, in Game 6, and right. then you two guys just going after each other in Game 7. Well, you know, truly for me, it's almost like a fairy tale. It's like a dream come true. You write a book and you fantasize about something. And I think every kid wants to grow up in his own community and, and play for the team that is in their community and then have a chance to go to World Series and then be the MVP of that World Series. So everything that happened in 91 seemed like it, it was a fairy tale. I think our manager, Tom Kelly, summed it up when he looked back and reflected on the World Series. He says it was like a great book. He said chapter one, meaning game one, will grab you and you couldn't put the book down. And then every chapter after that was a better chapter leading up to the climax of the, the final game. And, you know, the final game, I'm not sure it was the greatest game played. It was my personal best. But a one to nothing game in 10 innings, usually people are not really excited about that. And yet there wasn't a person in the stadium or watching on TV that doesn't remember it. It was just that dramatic of a game. Yeah, think about that. You're pitching 10 innings in Game 7 of a World Series. We can't even get guys to go five innings now. (laughs) (laughs) We could. We could. They're just not listening to us. (laughs) You know, a lot of people, I think this season is the season that may flip baseball back because we had so many people talking about bullpens, and it's about bullpenning. And now we're seeing just about everybody's bullpen. It really doesn't matter. A lot of the contenders, you look at our bullpen, you look at a lot of teams' bullpens are just getting just chewed up. Yeah. We had uh, Jim Leland on the program yesterday, and Jim said, you know, the best bullpen is a pitcher that goes seven innings and saves the bullpen. Do you think we'll start to see a flip because the bullpen's getting so beat up this year that teams are going to have to realize we got to get more out of our starters? Well, 
I've always said this, and I suppose I should be careful, but it is my opinion. When ownership realizes they don't have to pay 14 guys in the bullpen, the game will change. You know, we had, uh, when I came to the big leagues, there was uh, nine or ten pitchers on our on our staff. We had five starters. We had four or five guys in the bullpen. That was our that was our whole team. Now there's, you know, in September call-ups, God only knows how many guys. But you're right about that. Uh, and Sparky might have been ahead of his time because I remember he came to me when I was getting beat up in a lot of games late and he came to me and says I'm not coming to get you today you're you're going to have to go through this you're going to have to figure it out because I need you to close out games so that I can have you be the guy to rest our bullpen and so even back in the 80s uh, Sparky understood the importance of having a rested bullpen uh, when you don't have you know a number one or number two guy on the mound yeah, Ray Fossey talks about one of the World Series championships for the A's in the 70s. They only used five pitchers the entire World Series. Just shows you how much things have changed. And that's the thing, too, about when you look at, like, your numbers in your career, when we people were talking about the Hall of Fame, it's like no one come – if there was a struggle, no one was coming to get you in the fifth or sixth no. inning. You were going to be out there. Well, and, I, you know, I, I had a lot of people compare me to some of the great pitchers today. And there truly are great pitchers. Their velocity and, and some of the things they're accomplishing is something I never was able to accomplish. But you got to remember that they're getting help every game. They're not finishing the games. And the hardest thing to do is to win and, and do well in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings. Those are the toughest innings to do it. That's why they put so much value on a closer. And then I think about your time in Toronto. So you go from Minnesota to – it's like you're winning the World Series every year <laughs> – Toronto, that team, I think that team doesn't get enough love because no. that team, you had all kinds of, whether it's Hall of Famers, All-Stars, MVPs. I mean, you had, we recently had a guy you played with, Dave Stewart was on the program, yep. and we talked to Dave. I mean, that team in Toronto you guys had for those two years was spectacular. Talk about your time up north. Well, it was, and I look at talent-wise of all the teams, and I was very fortunate I was on four world championship teams, but our two teams in Toronto were like All-Star teams, and you here in the Oakland area, know two of the guys very well. Dave Stewart, who you just had on, Ricky Henderson. Mm-hmm. He came over and helped us in 93. And, you know, when we had guys like that, you know, it was just already a good team. And we get David Cohn, we get Dave Stewart, we get Ricky Henderson. You know, Paul Molitor replaces Dave Winfield. I mean, we just see to, seem to always upgrade uh, and you know, we were already good, but we got even better the second year. It's like you guys were an all-star team. We were. It was uh, – it was one of those teams where I'm not sure it was, you know, we played as hard as some of the teams like the Twins and the, and the Tigers that I was on, but we could look up in the seventh inning and know if we had to turn it up a notch or not to win the game because we had that kind of ability to, to turn it up in the fifth, sixth inning if we needed to come back and win. How did the forkball change your career? Change everything, and it started right down there in that bullpen. That's where I learned it, believe it or not. Really? I, I was in between starts. Back in about 1981 or two, I think it was 82, and uh, my teammate Milt Wilcox had played with Bruce Sutter, and I was throwing my bullpen in between starts right here in Oakland, and, and Milt asked me if I'd ever thrown a forkball, and I said, I don't even know what it is. So he showed me, he says, that's the pitch that Sutter's striking everybody out with. And uh, he looked at my hand and saw I had big fingers, and he said, you want to try it? I said, yeah, let's try it, because my slider was starting to get flat, and I wasn't having a put away pitch anymore it was just my slider I I started learning how to throw it properly but I didn't have that massive break that I did when I was young I was throwing more of a high school what we call a roundhouse slider uh, and I started throwing the good crisp slider but it was flat a lot and I'd hang it and I'd get beat on it and it was very similar in speed to my fastball so he asked me if I want to try it and I threw about 40 pitches and he showed me a couple different grips I was ready to quit on it and about the 41st pitch the bottom fell out of it, and I literally started giggling. I was just like a kid in a candy store, and I felt it. I knew what I had done different on that grip. Uh, I threw about five more, and four of the five just exploded down out of the zone, and I looked at Milton. I said, this is a game changer. This is unbelievable what I can do with a baseball, and two starts later, I was, or two, uh, two outings later, I was thrown in a game, and it just got better and better and better. So it went from a, a, an okay career 
to a Hall of Fame career because of what you learned here in Oakland. And believe it or not, I, I will I will agree with that. It's uh, that's that forkball was a game changer for me because a hitter couldn't sit fastball and forkball. They had to guess one or the other. And normally, even if they're when my splitter was my forkball was when I was first throwing it, I was the only guy in the American League throwing it. Now Dave Stewart learned it here. A bunch of guys ended up throwing it for a long time. Everybody was throwing it. But for about two years, nobody else in the baseball in American League was throwing it. Mike Scott picked it up in the National League a year later. And I could have told them it was coming. They couldn't have hit it. That's how effective it was. So to have a pitch that you have that kind of confidence in, I mean, it is a game changer. And I don't know why people have gone away from it. I think they'll come back to it. I think they just have to understand the work that's involved in staying strong and your ligaments because so many guys – our max velocity guys and the Tommy John issue with max velocity. Well, with the fork ball, you've really got to work that those tendons in your elbows because it puts more stress. And I can show you off the air how by just spreading your fingers and holding your arm out straight, it puts pressure on your elbow. You can feel it in your elbow. But as long as you build the strength around there and those ligaments are strong, it won't. It won't. Uh, they won't blow. Yeah, I was a I was a pitcher in college, and I got these little short yeah. fingers, so it didn't work for me. I tried. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I tried the knuckleball. I remember <laughs> Phil Necro showing it to me one day, and I started laughing. I said, "How do you do that?" Yeah. I couldn't, not even close, get a feel for it. It's an absolute honor to have you on the program, and thank you so much for coming down. We really appreciate it, and, and enjoy the weather, enjoy yeah, the series. I always I, will. And obviously, this place probably means a little something to you. You know, I've always had great memories here in Oakland. Uh, this the stadium's changed a little bit. You know, you got the the big monster out there in center field. But I remember a lot of great nights and great teams uh, from uh, from the 80s through the 90s. Uh, Oakland always had, and even now, they have great teams. One of the greats of all time, Jack Morris, right here on A's Cast Live. Hi, this is Eduardo Perez from ESPN. When I'm in the Bay Area, I make sure I listen to A's Cast Live. I got to tell you, Commander, you're doing a hell of a job. Uh, besides that being the most intimidating guy I've ever spoken to or talked to in my life, uh, thank you. He I, is, he's the most intimidating guy ever for you? I mean, I've never talked I never talked to Jack Morris before and met someone of his size and stature. So, yeah, a little intimidating for me. I mean, all of the Hall of Famers we've had on the program, like someone like Burt Blylev, and we had him on the phone. So, like, I don't know, I always feel like it's, it's like a, not a starstruck thing, but it's just one of those things where it's like, I remember hearing Jack Morris do interviews and see him on TV, and I always thought he was like a like a sore league, you know, older gentleman. But he was actually really nice. So I was kind of uh, intimidated at first, but after I talked to him, he was a really nice guy. When people said when he didn't get voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, I was like, "Are you kidding me? Did you watch him pitch? He won the World Series. Like this, like you acquired Jack Morris to win the World Series. He won the World Series in '91, '92, and '93." He was clearly one of the best pitchers of his era. He was a big game pitcher. And like he said, back in those days, but yeah, Jack Morris to me, when people said he wasn't a Hall of Famer, I'm like, you guys, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely, I mean, Jack Morris is one of the great pitchers of his time. There's no question about it. And should have been voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Put it this way, who would you rather have on your team? You're that Mike Mussina or you rather have that guy? Well, it's easy, Jack Morris. Jack Morris, can I tell you the scariest guy I ever interviewed? Uh, yeah. I All was right. trying to think if I could think in my head who it would be, but go ahead. Take a guess. Is it ba- it's a baseball guy? Nope. Oh. Okay, so intimidating football guy. Most intimidating. I was, I was trembling when I interviewed him. I can't really think of him off the top of my head. I was going to say Gruden. But he's kind of a nice guy. No, actually, quietly. actually, I did. Larry Kruger and I did Gruden's first radio interview. We caught him after the press conference, and they were trying to whisk him away because after the press conference, he talked to, you know, the writers. You know, they do a scrum. And we grabbed him and did an interview with him right No, but the scary. Wait, were you talking about the first time or second time? The first time. Oh, so back in, like, 98 or whatever that was? Whatever it was. Uh so years ago when I'm working on KMBR, I was on the morning show. And they would send me down to Pebble Beach. And I would do all the interviews down at Pebble Beach. Because Radnich didn't want to go. 
So I would do these interviews, and I got told, hey, at this time, be in front of the lodge down at Pebble Beach, and we're going to get you Clint Eastwood. Oh, boy. Now, this isn't... The mayor of Carmel. This isn't old. He's old, but he's not, like, old like he is now. The Mule. Do you see that movie? I watched a little bit on the plane the I, other day. I haven't, but I want to see it. Uh, he, he's, you know, Clint's, what, 80-something years old? Yeah, he's in his mid-80s, I think. So this is, this is probably around 2000, 2001. So this is, you know, around 20 years ago. So I'm standing there, and at that time, he was married to the woman who's doing TV down in Carmel, and she's standing. So what happens is they get done. They go, they, they, they go under the stands at 18 at Pebble Beach, and then they walk up the back steps of the lodge, and that's where she's waiting for him with, I think, their son or daughter. It was a young child. And all of a sudden, he appears. You don't realize how big Clint Eastwood is. He is a big man. You know, all the years he played down there. And, you know, you think about, if you're not old enough, go watch any of his old westerns. Go watch where he's Dirty Harry. He's a killer. He kills people. He has a 357 Magnum. Did I fire six? And since I have a cold, I can do it. Did I fire six? You know, with all the craziness, did I fire five or six shots? Well, do you feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? And then he shoots the guy because the guy moves. I've watched Clint Eastwood kill people my entire life. I thought this was a family-friendly program. So a dark turn. And all of a sudden, he turns and starts walking to me. And in my head, all I can hear is, wah, 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 wah. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. And he just gets bigger as he gets closer. This is the only interview. I've interviewed Bill Murray. I've interviewed some big-time stars down at Pebble Beach. They would bring all these guys. These are superstar movie stars. Think of anybody I've interviewed, some of the biggest names in sports. Never intimidated. I was scared to death. He's, he, like I said, as he walked up, he got bigger and bigger. He had huge hands. I shook his hands. I was so nervous. I don't even know if it was a good interview. I just remember the whole time <laughs> I'm standing there going, I cannot believe I'm interviewing Clint Eastwood. This is incredible. We, uh, I actually take this back. A couple years ago when the Super Bowl was here and we did Radio Row over at the Moscone Center in San Francisco, we had Charles Haley on. And that, talk about an intimidating person just because you never know what's going to happen. He, want, he wanted to literally um, hurt Joe Fortenbaugh for something he said to him. Like, it looked like he had that look in his eyes. Like He's bipolar. It's like, what, what's going to happen here? And, like, you know, it looked like he was going to, like, literally snap and everyone's, like, like, on edge, but he was, like, joking around. But... To this day, Joe also say, like, you know, that, that changed my life. Like, I, I thought I was going to die by Charles Haley. <laughs> yeah, Haley, he, Haley's a big man. Yeah, he's intimidating. Coolest interview I ever did was they were going to bring us Bill Murray. So I would be, I'd be in the lodge in the media room, but I was out in the front. I was not back with all the media. I was in the, you know, where you first walk in. And so... They said, we'll bring you Bill Murray, but Bill has one request. you got to have breakfast for him. So he said, no problem. So my brother's with me this year at Pebble Beach at this time. My brother taught Bill Murray's nephew golf in San Diego. My brother's a teaching pro in San Diego. And years before, because, you know, they're Chicago guys, so that guy, the, the kid, his nephew, we ran into Bill Murray's brother at the Rose Bowl in 95 when USC Keyshawn Johnson played Northwestern. And it just so happens we sit next to Bill Murray's brother. And the reason why we're in Northwestern section is my cousin, her husband Jack, was assistant AD at Northwestern. So we had Northwestern tickets. So I got to meet Bill Murray's brother. It's pretty cool. So then all of a sudden Bill comes in. And, you know, Bill, it's just another interview to him. He doesn't care. He just wants to eat, get out of there, and go to uh, the driving range for his tea time. Well, next thing you know, he walks in. We introduce ourselves. And my brother goes, how you doing, Bob Townsend? And I can't remember what his, his nephew's name. He goes, I, I teach your nephew golf. And you should see in his eyes. Like, Bill, really? And then we said, oh, yeah. And, and, and uh, we sat with your brother 
So my brother knew Bill Murray's brother because obviously he was paying him to teach his kid. But it was like, yeah, I sat with your brother at the Rose Bowl. Bill Murray sat at breakfast and did about four. It was almost 50-minute interview. And in my ear back at KMBR, keep going. Don't go to commercial break. Just keep going. It was radio magic to have Bill Murray, as funny as he is, telling stories about Cubs, going to Wrigley Field as a kid, talking about acting, talking about Caddyshack. I mean, we, I mean, we covered, we, it was almost about 50 minutes. And the whole time, once, just like Clint Eastwood, the whole time I'm going, I cannot believe I'm sitting here interviewing Bill Murray. You're starstruck. Here's this guy, this unknown. Cinderella story. <laughs> back at, off. Back off, man. At Augusta, I'm a scientist. At Augusta. <laughs> it's one of the best lines in that movie. Cinderella story. This unknown. <laughs> and, and, you know, the Dalai Lama himself. Gunga Gulunga, he said to me. <laughs> All righty. Just tell them some stories. That's what we do here on A's Cast Live. Coming up next, what, what, what time are we going to? 4.15. That's our hard out. Four fifteen. Oh, I thought I was going to throw it to buying or selling. No, we still got another segment to fill. Oh, I got. I have. You want nuggy nugs? I have some nuggy nugs on this game coming up next, and a story about Justin Verlander that all really of a good. sudden backs my point versus you millennials. Next. Well, I thought you were a millennial though. I'm like a millennial. It's true. Okay. It is true. I am. Like Don't a throw millennial. us under the bus. I love you, millennials. Yeah. No, you're no, not you. Us. Us. I need you to eat more. I'm chi- gonna throw us under the bus. I need you to eat more chicken pies right here on A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. All right, I'm trying to. I'm trying to look up how old this guy is. Nathaniel Rakic is his name. Sabermetric-minded political uh, politics writer, social science-minded baseball writer, election. So he, he works for 538, and they really do an unbelievable job with elections and all that kind of stuff. But he came out with an article that says, here's the title. Everyone thinks Justin Verlander belongs in the Hall of Fame. So why don't the stats agree? You sent that to me, Cody, and I was like, un- I was like, are you kidding me? And I started reading the article, and I'm glad I did. Because, you know, it's not often that I'm right. But this time, I might be. The basis of the article is based off Jaws. What is Jaws? No, not the movie, not the shark, not the 28-foot monster shark that goes around eating everybody, which is truly, in my opinion, the most influential movie maybe in the history of cinema. And you might say, what? And I'll tell you why. Jaws made people scared to go in the water around the world. Just not ocean water. It made people scared to go in, in lakes, in pools. Big game hunters started going after all the big great white sharks in South Africa and Australia and out here in, our, out here in, uh, the, in the Pacific. But that movie made people terrified. And to this day, people are terrified to go in the ocean because of this megalodon crazy-ass big shark going around eating everybody. But back to Jaws. What is Jaws? Jeff Jaffe came up with this scoring system for the Hall of Fame for baseball prospectus back in 2004. And it's Jaffe War Score System. Jaffe, so you get the JA and then the War Score System. They call it JAWS. So basically, it evaluates players who are playing today versus Hall of Famers. Okay? Guys in the Hall of Fame, the greats of the great. So I started thinking about it, and it made me laugh for sabermetricians. Which, by the way, I don't even know why we even these guys even go into this anymore because the game of baseball really now is about technology and about stat cast and track man and, and Hawkeye that's coming in. And, you know, you know we've talked about with David Force. No, I mean, they're not looking at these numbers anymore. None of these front offices look at this stuff anymore. It's high-tech cameras. It's all that stuff. But I'll go with it. 
So he's saying his Jaws rating is not close to the guys that are in the Hall of Fame. So I go to my producer, Commander Cody, who loves sabermetrics. Cody, what is two things that you can guarantee starting pitchers have a lot of who have been inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame? There's two things that they all have, guaranteed. Because some guys didn't strike out a lot of batters. Some guys did. Jack Morris is a good example. He only struck out 2,400-something batters. But wins and innings pitched. Wait a minute. Wins? Nobody cares about wins anymore. According Says to, who? Who said that? According to this article, if we're going to compare Justin Verlander to all the guys in the Hall of Fame, well, what are the two things that all the guys in the Hall of Fame got? Wins and innings pitched. So why do sabermetricians tell me wins don't matter? So you're telling me this guy is, he says... Let me go back to his Twitter handle. A sabermetric-minded politicals writer. So if he's saying he's one of these guys that say wins don't matter, but now he's comparing Verlander to all the guys in the Hall of Fame, well, they all have a bunch of wins. I, I, wh- where are we with this? I'm confused. Ultimately, people are still going to say wins don't matter because it's the way the game, the people evaluate the game now. The, the people of my generation, the younger, the younger folk, don't look at they look at other categories like quality starts and strikeouts per nine and K's and ERA and WHIP and Verlander FIP. doesn't have all that. Oh, he's Verlander's. I I don't have to argue that. I told you Verlander's a Hall of Famer. It's interesting who Jaffe has ahead of Verlander on his list though. He's Zach Granke number one. Yeah, which, which you, I've been arguing for months now that I think Granke's a Hall of Famer. Do you think Granke's better had a better no. career than Justin Verlander? No. Okay, okay, these are the these are just to show you statistics lie and liars use statistics. Just to show you this Jaws thing. Number one is Zach Grinky. Number two is Verlander. Number three is Clayton Kershaw. Number four is Max Scherzer. Would you rather have Grinky over Justin Verlander? Uh, no. Would you rather have him over Clayton Kershaw? Regular season wise, no. Okay. But, but, that, but that, that, that's what this is. No, I wouldn't. No, I would rather have Kershaw. Max Scherzer. No. CC Sabathia. Remember, CC was a bad man. CC was dominant in the in the early aughts and up to two thousand, like the early two thousand tens. But then Granke kind of took. I'm, I take Granke. And then number six. Did he do a top ten? So then number six, Cole Hamels. Granky. Felix Hernandez at seven. It's tough. That guy never made the playoffs. I feel bad for him, but I take Granky. Number eight, Chris Sale. Sale still has a lot. I take Sale. Well, he's number eight on this list. I know. Sale's dominant. He, he's had, the, what was it? Scherzer has eight straight, straight years of 200 strikeouts. Sale's next at seven. Okay. And he has a pitch, and he's been hurt this year. Number nine, Johnny Lester. Oh, Granky. Over Lester? Yeah. Over Lester's career in the postseason? Uh, I remember that wild card game that he pitched. Uh, he left with a lead. True. But he gave up, what, six runs in that according game? To, according to you guys, hey, he left with the lead, the bullpen. See, wins are overrated. He, he left with the lead, and the bullpen couldn't hold it. Unfortunately, Twice. The, unfortunately, the bullpen wasn't like what the Royals had with Holland and Herrera. Hey, Davis. Number 10. This guy's had a great career. Yeah, At, he has. I know who it is, but he has. Adam Wainwright. He's so underrated. The guy was a closer when he first started in his career. And he turned into a starting pitcher. It's like Derek Lowe. Well, he got hurt, and then he became a closer for him for a. Uh, well, I, 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 he started with the Braves. He was a Braves. He's a reliever with the Braves, and the Cardinals made him a starter. Yeah, it's almost like in that World Series, it was just like, hey, we're going to pitch him in the high leverage moments, and it just happened to be a lot of them were late in the game. People always forget in the, the, the years that he was dominant. Chris Carpenter was really good then too, and no, everyone always forgets Chris Carpenter because now. They compared Jack Flaherty with the Cardinals to uh, some, uh, someone like a Chris Carpenter and Adam Wainwright. Now, Flaherty's been great, but, I mean, Adam Wainwright doesn't – I don't think he gets the respect he, respect he deserves over the years he's had. I mean, he's been – I mean, up the last couple of years, he hasn't looked like a major leaguer and from his standards, but you know, going into a couple of years ago, Adam Wainwright was on a trajectory to be a Hall of Famer, in my opinion. Remember, statistics lie and liars use statistics. If you're telling me you're taking Zach Grinke's the best – in the end, Grinke's going to pitch – Granky and Verlander are two guys that really could pitch 
probably into their 40s. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're both going to pitch on the same team for a couple more years. Right, so where is Verlander right now in wins? Uh, Verlander has, I think, like 215, somewhere around there, and Granke just got 200. Uh, Verlander has Verlander in his career has 221 wins. I mean, and he's 36 years old. He'll be 30. He'll turn 37 in February. If he really wants to go for 300, I think he can get it. Well, he's. I mean, he figured he's going to get. He'll probably get 20 wins this year. He's at 17 right now. So, Verlander goes double digits for the next X amount of years. You can see him getting 300 wins. Yeah. If if, if he wants to endure what it's going to take to pitch into your 40s. His his idol is Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan pitched until he was, what, 46, 45, yeah. 46? But you had to realize for Nolan to do that, and as a power pitcher, Nolan Ryan was notorious for he would pitch a game, and then after the game he'd work out for like an hour plus then he'd meet with the media. So you'd have to wait. It would have been He would have been a pain in the ass to cover, let's be honest. Hey, Nolan, can you come out and talk to us and then so we can do our jobs? But that's how Nolan Ryan was able to be a power pitcher into his mid-40s was the work ethic. If, if he, Justin Verlander, and you could almost say because when you look at Grinky's style, Grinky is not about a fastball. He's a pitcher. Yeah. He's a great pitcher. And if he wants to pitch long enough, who's to say? I mean, that's that's like 100 wins. But but I think if, if we talk about one guy remaining that has a chance to get to 300, it's Justin Verlander. I mean, plus, CC's done. Plus, now, Granke came up when he was 20 in 04 with the, the Royals. He won 8-11 and 11, and then 5-17, and 17, and then he only started three games in, 20, in 2006. He didn't really start taking out until 2008 when he was 24. So you give him those four years where he pl- when he started when he was twenty, he got to have a lot more wins. If, well, one if the Royals are better, and he actually got a chance to uh, pitch some more games. But a guy like CC Sabathia, who has I think close to two hundred and fifty wins, and he has three thousand strikeouts. He's got to get he's going to get in. But I mean, I, do you think I? I mean, personally, I think Verlander has a better better chance of getting in the Hall of Fame first before CC. I think if it both ended today, I think Verlander gets in before CC, and CC has a three thousand strikeouts. Well, Verlander's getting to 3,000 strikeouts. Well, yeah, he's going to probably get it this year. Yeah, but I'm saying if it ended today, today was the last day. Verlander stopped today. CC's, we know, is done up to the season. I who would, get, ta- who, I who would gets take in? Verlander. Yeah, same. Do you know, check out, we got a couple cool things going this weekend. So tomorrow, wait a minute, what is today? Today's Friday, right? I'm losing track yeah, of my days. Friday, oh, yes. my God. Today, so tomorrow we have our Chevy Star Wars fireworks. Can't wait. I'll be here. From a galaxy far, far away. Well, we are at Comerica Park right now. The Rebels, the Rebel Athletics host the Detroit Tigers this Saturday at 6.07, first pitch. So following the game, we're going to have fireworks, Star Wars fireworks, and that will be pretty cool. I will also be here too. Treehouse? Pre-game? Treehouse pre-game, and then I'll be uh, up in the press box for the post-game show. And then this Sunday, a bobblehead. How about that? I like it. So we're giving out a bobblehead this Sunday. Latin, Latin X bobblehead. First pitch is 107, celebrating Latin, Latin culture. And I believe we're also going to have, uh, it's going to be the Burt Campanaris bobblehead. That's correct. Purchase your tickets today visiting athletics.com last, excuse me, athletics.com slash Latinx. So there you go. Did I get it in for you? Fireworks, bobblehead. There you go. Fireworks tomorrow night, bobblehead on Sunday. By the way, Star Wars Episode Nine the comes out in December. Can't wait. Yeah, the Rise of Skywalker. Can't wait. By the way, uh, riding around in the plane with either the A's or the uh, Raiders, I've caught up on a lot of movies the past couple of years. I liked Solo. It wasn't bad. You didn't like Solo? You're against you're you're against Han I'm not Solo. A Han, I'm not a Han Solo guy. I think Han Solo is the most overrated character in the Star Wars universe. Uh, how the hell could you say that? He's an inter, intergalactic pimp, for God's sake, uh, R- riding around on the Millennium Falcon. Uh, no. so he he shot a blaster. Huh? 
He had no special. He had. He used a blaster. I'm. I'm a, please. You're against Han, You're against Harrison Ford and Han Solo. What the hell? Seriously, I, I might be done with this show. I might walk off it right now. You know what? I was so I was so mad. I was infuriated in um, the Empire Strikes Back when he used the lightsaber to rub the tauntaun to put Luke in there. You don't use that. You won't use your blaster. You don't see you don't see Luke borrowing your gun. You didn't, your you, blaster. You, you didn't like his gun. He had like a. He had like it was like a three fifty seven magnum. But it, Pe- people people get mad at me when I say I think he's overrated. But he's the most overrated character in the Star Wars universe. Who's the most important then? Oh, it's easy. Darth Vader. What about Lando Calrissian? I like Lando. Uh, Donald Glover did a nice job as Lando and, and Solo. Colt forty five works every time. You Billy D. Williams. Huh? Billy D. How good was Billy? Billy D. D. was good. I th- actually, he's gonna be in the new one. You really don't like Han Solo? No, I'm not a fan. I like Harrison Ford. Great in Blade Runner. Great in Indiana Jones. Air Force One. Oh, Indiana Jones was a great one. I love Han Solo. Yeah, thank you. I just, the rock star likes Han Solo. You, of course he does. Yeah, because Han Solo's a rock star. Right here on A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. You know, it wasn't that long ago that the Tigers and the A's were battling in the playoffs. And now they're absolutely horrible. I mean, they're historically bad. By the way, they need to win they need to win three games over their last I don't know how many they've left. Over their last twenty, let's we'll say. To not lose hundred and nineteen games and break the record they set sixteen years ago. Oh, I'd like to see it happen. Yeah, I would too. Uh, ben and I were going through that O three Tigers team to see if we can name anybody. Who was on that team? AJ Hinch was on that team. What year? 2003. No, I mentioned the pitchers a, a plenty of times to you, how Mike Maroth went 9-21 that year. Bonderman. Bonderman. Former A was on that team. Cornejo. Steve Sparks, former A, got traded from Detroit to the A's that year. Thank so, God. Yeah, good, good for Sparks. Yeah. <clears throat> that was the year they lost 119? Yes. Rod, Dimitri Young was their best player. Do you know uh, what uh, on this date in baseball history is? Uh, I do not, actually. It's uh, the day Cal Ripken broke the streak. Lou Gehrig's streak, 2,131. Broke a 56-year record by Lou Gehrig. It was a big deal. President Clinton was in the house. It's a big day. The Iron Man streak that... Joe DiMaggio showed up and talked because, of course, he knew Lou Gehrig. Cal Ripken, one of the one of only seven guys ever won the MVP award on a losing team. By the way, the teams have been eliminated from division races. Wait for it: Orioles, White Sox, Tigers, Royals, Angels, Mariners, Rangers, and Blue Jays. Teams el- eliminated from postseason contention. You know, when you got twenty-something games left and you've already been eliminated, you're bad. That's the Orioles, Tigers, Royals, Mariners, Jays. What do they all have in common? Well, they're all bad. But what do they all have in common other than that they're all bad? They're in the AL? They're all in the AL. That's right. My, that's right. My Pirates aren't tanking. They're just bad. The magic number for the Rays to get in is 20. The magic number for your athletics to get in is 22. 22. You know, I, I feel bad for, as you just said, the MVPs on, on, on losing teams. By the way, the NBA has only had one player win the MVP on a team that didn't make the playoffs. 1976, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the greatest basketball player of all time. Whoa. Yeah. Over Jordan? Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, you want to go look up the stats and the championships and the dominance in college at UCLA? I mean, Jordan won six titles. How many Kareem win? Uh, six, I believe, with five MVPs. Let's. let's. Uh, the, the name of the game is putting the ball in the hoop. Who who's ha- who has the most points of all time? Uh, Kareem. Uh, that'd be Kareem. And no one's close. Kareem was a 19-time All-Star. Yeah. No, just read it off for me. Six-time was... NBA champion. Oh, wow. You mean he had just as many as Jordan? Yeah, but, but Jordan was so clutch. And he won one in a small market with Milwaukee. Wait for it. Just run down all the stuff Kareem's, since, since your generation has no idea what Kareem did as a basketball player. Hall- Just run it down. Well, Naismith Hall of Famer. Yeah, of course. 19-time All-Star. Uh-huh. 
uh, six-time champ, 11-time All-Defensive player. Wow. Two-time NBA Finals MVP. Wow. He won Rookie of the Year in 1969-1970. Uh-huh. He's only a two-time scoring champ. I don't know who beat him out. Uh, four-time blocks champion, uh, 15-time All-NBA, uh-huh. and six-time MVP. And let's not forget, they wouldn't allow freshmen to play in, in, in basketball back in the day. Three times he won the national championship at UCLA. Jordan once. Three times. I don't know. It's a pretty good resume. Jordan. Three. Jordan, four, Hall of Famer, 14-time All-Star. So not as many as Kareem. Uh, three-time Stills champ, 11-time All-NBA. Not, also, as many, not as many as Kareem. He also retired. Took, two, what, two years off? Well, baseball. He, was, he was gambling and he was <laughs> in trouble. So Five-time MVP, uh, six-time finals MVP, three-time All-Star game MVP. What's that? I don't, does that really matter? No, that does not matter. Nine-time All-Defensive team, six-time NBA champ, and ten-time scoring champion. Ten times. Kareem had it, did it twice. Well, Kareem Different also, era. Kareem didn't play with a three-point line either until later late in his uh, career. Quietly, Jordan was only a uh, 33, 33% shooter from the three-point line. Hey, uh, which isn't very good. <laughs> no. uh, tell me, how many points did Jordan have? Uh, total in his career? He had uh, – it doesn't have it on his total points on here. It just says his total points in his career average per game was 30. He's thousands upon thousands of points behind Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Are we doing buying or selling today? I'm just no? making a case. I just know what I want to get into is how much time do we got? Uh, less than five minutes. I feel bad for Trout. But so do I. And you handed me an article about guys winning the MVP who are on bad teams. And there is a belief that if you're on a bad team, why would you be? How valuable are you if you're on a bad team? But where I feel bad for Trout is – we judge players on how many MVPs they win, like we just did with Kareem and we just did with, with the Jordan. You know, Bonds is the all-time leader at seven. And what I feel bad is, is that should we penalize the best player in the game because the, the, the team around him stinks? That's not his fault. He doesn't put the team together. He doesn't sign the checks. I mean, Tr- Trout's the best player in the game. There's, there's, there's nobody consistently close Bellinger's having a good year. Yelich is having a good year. Whatever, but no, but nobody is 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 Trout. He's the best. We see him. We know he is the best player in the game. He is a historic great player. Are we going to deny him this award because of the guys around him? Is that fair? No, because he. I, we talked about this earlier. See, what, this is our millennial here. Two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. He was the best player in baseball by far. Stats, WAR, everything. And the one year Cabrera won it because he won the Triple Crown. And then Cabrera won it both years. But Trout was a better player. Trout was by far a better all-around player. I think it was 2013. Trout's war was 10.5. 10.5. Yeah, and let's not forget Miguel Cabrera. Where is he? Where is the big man? Because right now the Tigers are on the field uh, taking batting practice. Uh, they are the home team. That is true. We're, we're <laughs> in Detroit. Um. The scoreboard, oh, yeah, the, t- the Tigers are the home team up on the scoreboard. Is that crazy? We should take a picture of that. I already did. I put up, can, I, can I ask you so quick? Cause so, but but Miguel Cabrera stinks on defense. Oh, yeah, no. Not, not, stinks. Not, I, remember, he, I remember having this with Matt Steinmetz and I went round and round about this. I'm like, he's like, he won the Triple Crown. I said, who cares? Well, not, not who cares. He's a great player. Trout's a better player. He should be the MVP. Do you, do you remember where he, what he played when he came up in, the, in baseball? Played left field. Then he moved to third, and then he moved to first. Oh, with, you're, talking, with about, Marlins, you're yeah. talking about Miggy. Yeah. By the way, Roxy Bernstein has the greatest Miguel Cabrera story of all time. I'll let him tell it. Quickly, because since the music, we don't need the music. I'm going to ask you two buying or selling without music. By, Yankee, by Yankee. the way, I apologize for my voice. I'm yeah. sick. Actually, let's do one because we're running out of time. Oh, there you go. All right. So the Yankees and our Red Sox, uh, well, it's, uh, they play again this weekend. Oh, it's the, is this the final meeting? No, uh, it might be, actually. Because they played 15 times already. By the way, we need we need to root for the Yankees. We, yes, need, we, do. we need we need to put the stake in the heart of the Boston Red Sox. Uh, by the way, the Red Sox are 24 and 39 against teams with a winning record, including 4 and 11 versus the Yanks. Wait wait a minute wait a minute. Compared to your Oakland Athletics, I have that. Well, quickly buying yourself the average game time for Yankees Red Sox this year is three hours and 17 minutes. I did the math. Buying or selling, Yankees and Red Sox will play at least one game that goes over four hours this weekend. Oh, that's that's I. 
buy all day. I'll put my I'll put my house. <laughs> I almost I almost put five guys oh, five hours because they have seventeen guys in the Red Sox bullpen right now. In London, one game was four hours in and forty two minutes. Yeah, and then the other game was four hours and twenty something. By the way, your A's, your A's are forty nine and thirty two against teams under five hundred. And they are 32. They've won 32 of 58 against winning teams. But the Boston Red Sox can't beat anybody that's worth a damn. No, that'd be a 32 and 26 record there for the A's. That's it? Yeah, so we got, yeah. Close it up. A's all night next. The face. The face, Alex Jensen. And then I will see you in the treehouse. By the way, this is a great day. This is the great, best show we've done on the road this year, coming to you live from Comerica Park. Hey, I, I, I got to tell you, what a beautiful day it is in downtown Detroit, right here on A's Cast Live. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.